Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity to consider your will for our children as it relates to their education. And as we think about that topic of education, we know that this is much wider and deeper and broader than we've commonly thought. So please give us a, a, an open mind, a bigger picture, a more spiritual perspective on the training of our children for heaven and for the mission work that you've entrusted to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know from Deuteronomy 6, which we read in the previous session, that God tells parents to hide the words, the commandments of God in our hearts and to teach them to our children whilst we rise up and lie down and walk by the way and all of these things. We've seen this a couple of times, but have you ever thought about it in terms of their educational training? Now, the topic of education is one that is of huge importance. Listen to this statement, and before I share this statement, this whole discussion is, is being pulled from these two, schooled and undoctrinated. You can see the images of them there. Schooled is the deliberate agenda to destroy individuality, reduce intelligence, and re-engineer society. You're, that's kind of a mouthful. You'll see what that's all about in just a little bit. And undoctrinated, how home education and schools of the prophets will produce the last generation. Now this one particularly is coming from a certain denominational perspective as the historical development has taken place in the development of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We've been given specific counsels as I speak to you in a Seventh-day Adventist Church today, specific direction from the Lord in the documents and, and, and books and periodicals and statements from the pioneers of our church who've directed us in a unique path on true education. So you might say education, that's just something that the teachers and the principals and the administrators and the school officials take seriously, and we don't really have to worry that much about it. Listen to this statement. It says, one who has long been our instructor was speaking to the people. He said, the subject of education should interest the whole Seventh-day Adventist body. The decisions regarding the character of our schoolwork should not be left wholly to principals and teachers. Now, isn't that a wake-up call? So you might not even be a parent. You might not even have children. But the whole church community says, we take seriously the training and education of our children. It should matter to us all. There's some wake-up call quotations like this one. There is no work more important than the education of our youth. The church is asleep and does not realize the magnitude of this matter of educating the children and youth. God requires that the church arouse from her lethargy and see what is the manner of service demanded of her at this time of peril. The lambs of the flock must be fed. The Lord of heaven is looking on to see who is doing the work he would have done for the children and youth. As a church, as individuals, if we would stand clear in the judgment, we must make more liberal efforts for the training of our young people. Now, those are some strong statements, aren't they? I mean, they're saying this is a serious matter. The training of our young people, we're asleep to this. We're not taking it seriously enough. If we want to stand clear in the judgment, it should matter to the whole church body, especially to parents, most of whom are gathered here for the seminar on parenting and on understanding the true education of our children, which really is one and the same thing. Usually when we say the word education, we think about just the academic aspects. But look at this statement. In the highest sense, the work of education and the work of redemption 
are one. Wow. So education is synonymous with redemption. So you're interested in education. You're educating your child because you're leading them to Jesus. You're helping them to experience what it means to be a Christian, to be human, to become fully the character, manifesting the character of Christ in their lives, becoming missionaries, becoming all the things that we are called to be. Redemption, becoming the way God originally designed us to be, to be restored to God's original plan. That's the process of education takes us there. So this is not just a discussion about school and how you do math and these kinds of things. Academic matters do count for parents as they think about their children, but the most important aspect is the well-rounded, complete, total redemption process. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. This whole session is going to be a really, really comprehensive and involved story, going way back to the Garden of Eden, taking us all the way through the Bible times, in the post-Bible times, in the, the 2,000 years after the time of Jesus, straight through the Dark Ages and the time of the Reformation, and then the, the formation of the Advent movement in the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the 19th century in our education system. Also, the worldly schooling methods that were coming in at that same time. You're going to see these histories parallel each other. False education and true education going at the same time, hand-in-hand, hand, competing with one another. There's a Great controversy going on, right? You've got Christ's methods, Satan's methods to raise and train our children, either for the world or for the Lord. And then straight on into the last days, we'll see where this is all going at the end of the session. I want to take you all the way back now to the Garden of Eden. You know what kind of education was formed there? The system of education established in Eden centered in the family. It says Adam was the son of of God, not in the sense of Jesus, but a, a child. He was, he was, God made him. And it was from their father that the children of the highest received instruction. Theirs, in the truest sense, was a family school. In the divine plan of education, adapted to man's condition after the fall, so here we are fast forwarding just a bit, Christ ordained that men and women should be his representatives, and the family was the school, and the parents were the teachers. So did you catch that? The original form of education in the Garden of Eden was Adam and Eve learning directly from God. That was their family. God was their father. Then after the fall, you've got the parents are the teachers and the family is the school. That was God's plan for after the fall for the best way for the training and education and the raising of children. And it says, by the way, in Child Guidance, page 294, that this was God's plan for all aftertime also. Now, we're going to see some other elements come in, and we'll see what God has done in the midst of this great controversy. But that was his plan for his people. In early ages, this would be the patriarchal times and the times of, uh, of Noah and Enoch and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In early ages, with the people who were under God's direction, life was simple. They lived close to the heart of nature. Their children shared in the labor of the parents and studied the beauties and mysteries of nature's treasure house. And in the quiet of field and wood, they pondered those mighty truths handed down as a sacred trust from generation to generation. Such training produced strong men. So did it work? Did God's method work? As history pro progressed here in the Old Testament prior to the time of Israel, you had the patriarchs in early ages. The system God established was producing strong men. What system was it? The family was the school. The, the parents were the teachers. They lived close to the heart of nature. They studied the nature's treasure house and labored with the parents. You heard it all in the quotation. That's a beautiful picture of how to do life as a family, isn't it? 
Let's continue on. It says, In ordinary life, the family was both a church and a school. In God's plan for Israel. So now we're taking one more step forward here into the time of Israel. God's plan for Israel was the same thing. Every family would have a home on the land with sufficient ground for tilling. Thus were provided both the means and incentive for a useful, industrious, self-supporting life. And no devising of men has ever improved upon that plan. Are you getting the idea this is God's preferred method, right? I mean, having a family in the country, in the land, and you're growing food, and you're working together, and you're studying in nature, and you're experiencing life together in this natural beauty setting. That's no devising of man has ever improved upon that. That was God's plan for Israel. It was working well here. He said, we're going to continue it here. Let's see what happened next. It says, the home and the school were one. In the place of stranger lips, the loving hearts of the father and mother were to give instruction to their children. Such was the training of Moses, of Samuel, of David, of Daniel. Such, too, was the early life of Christ. Such the training by which the child Timothy learned from the lips of his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois the truths of holy writ. Further provision was made for the instruction of the young, by, notice an additional detail here, by the establishment of the school of the prophets. This is the first time you've heard about a school, isn't it? In early ages, it was parents, it was the home. God wanted to do that for Israel as well. Moses was raised this way. In the future, Timothy and Daniel and some others, they were, if you will, home educated. And then God said, Further provision was made for the instruction of the young by the establishment of the school of the prophets. And so, why might somebody go to one of these schools in ancient Israel? Well, it says, If a youth was eager to obtain a better knowledge of the scriptures, to search deeper into the mysteries of the kingdom of God, and to seek wisdom from above, that he might become a teacher in Israel, this school was opened to him. So he had his home education experience. And then God said, let's have a school of the prophets here in Israel. So that if there's a child who wants to search more deeply, understand the mysteries of God, become a teacher in Israel, he can study under one of the great prophets. You read about the schools of the prophets. When you, read, when you hear about the sons of the prophets in First and Second Kings and Elisha, and you've got the young men that come out and they, they, they're, they're chopping down trees and they're going to build a building, right? And, and one of the axe heads flies off the axe handle into the, into the, lake, into the uh, stream and, oh no, master, it was borrowed. And this makes a great children's story, doesn't it? It's in the blue, blue books, the My Bible Friends books. So anyway, what were all these youths doing with Elisha, right? This, this, was, this was his, his cadre of, of youth who were learning under him. He was discipling them. He was teaching them, if you will, a school of sorts. Not in the traditional, modern, you know, industrial sense that we'll talk about in a moment, but this was God's method for true education to augment and be in addition to what had taken place in the home. Let's take a look at what else it says about this. It says, going back again to the patriarchs times, before Israel was, was formed as a nation, the education centering in the family was that which prevailed in the days of the patriarchs. We knew that already, but it also says this, for the schools thus established, in other words, the home schools, God provided the conditions 
most favorable for the development of character. So the institution of school as another entity was never meant to say, now the home doesn't matter. No, no, no. The home school is the most important school there is. It's the, the best place for the formation of character. You getting this? Continuing on with the quote. The men who held fast God's principles of life dwelt among the fields and hills. They were tillers of the soil and keepers of the flocks and herds. And in this free, independent life with its opportunities for labor and study and meditation, those three are very important, we'll get back to that, they learned of God and taught their children of His works and ways. Oh, that's beautiful. And this was the method of education that God desired to establish in Israel. So He wanted to. Do you kind of sense a curve in the road coming up here? It's like he desired to establish this same home education system in Israel, but, uh-oh, when brought out of Egypt, there were among the Israelites few prepared to be workers together with him in the training of their children. Oh, boy. In very many households, the training appointed by heaven and the characters thus developed were alike rare. In other words, they weren't doing their job in the home. The parents weren't. Fathers and mothers in Israel became indifferent to their obligation to God, indifferent to their obligation to their children. Through unfaithfulness in the home and idolatrous influences without, many of the Hebrew youth received an education differing widely from that which God had planned for them. They learned the ways of the heathen in their homes. To meet this growing evil... God provided other agencies. Samuel, by the Lord's direction, established the schools of the prophets. So now you've heard two reasons why schools were established. Number one earlier was after having a successful childhood, early childhood in the home, a youth could go on and study further in one of the schools of the prophets. But this one is giving another angle to this, showing the establishment of the schools of the prophets was an absolute necessity because of the growing evil of the home not doing its original God-appointed job of raising, training, educating those children in the God-appointed home school. So God brought in the schools to meet the growing evil of the parents not able to, willing to, struggling, whatever we would call it. And we're all struggling today too. We'll get into the future why we have schools today also. But you get the idea. Original plan, then God's stopgap measure to help those parents. You've got to have those schools of the prophets to help those kids out because they're learning the ways of the heathen. This is not going according to plan A. Let's bring in a plan B also to work alongside this. This was Jesus's plan. Let's fast forward now to Jesus's education. As a little child, he was daily at his mother's knee taught from the scrolls of the prophets. You know, he was the carpenter's son, right? Jesus followed the divine plan of education. What was that? Well, the schools of his time, with their magnifying of things small and their belittling of things great, he did not seek. His education was gained directly from the heaven-appointed sources, from useful work, from the study of the scriptures and of nature, and from the experiences of life, God's lesson books. So there's your curriculum, by the way, parents. There it is. Did you hear the four things? The experiences of life, daily labor, the study of scriptures, the study of nature. That, my friends, is true education in a nutshell. Everything else is a distilled version, an explained version of these four big things. Did you notice where Jesus' education took place? 
Just like in the divine plan, it says, the divine, you just follow the divine plan for education. In the, in the old times, Garden of Eden, post-fall, patriarchs, what God desired to do in Israel, home education. This was God's plan originally. The schools came in as an advanced course and as a stopgap measure for those struggling homes. God takes Jesus back to the original plan and says, we're going to do this thing in the home because the schools of his day, the rabbinical schools, are not doing things correctly. And we're going to have Mary and Joseph do the job that's not being done. Now let's fast forward past the time of Jesus. We heard about Timothy and some others in the New Testament doing this same method. But after the Bible times, after the book of Acts, after the close of, of, of the first century, you get on into what, what, what becomes the, the, the deceptions and the distortions within Christianity, ultimately culminating in the Dark Ages. And you get this, this false religion called Christianity that envelops the entirety of Europe and only a very select small group of people, many of whom are are living in the hills and valleys of the mountains and are persecuted for clinging to and holding to that original biblical first century apostolic faith. One of my favorite groups to study, and if you get the book The Great Controversy, and I shouldn't say if, get the book The Great Controversy and read the chapter on the Waldenses. That chapter is so inspiring in terms of the families and the children and, and the kind of lives that they lived in these, these Waldensian hills and valleys in the Piedmont Valley in just, just north of right where the Vatican sat, right? The, the Roman papal powers allied with the kings of Europe during this Dark Ages time sought to stamp out any biblical expressions of Christianity to bring only what this Dark Ages church mandated. We're going to talk about them more in a second, but the Waldenses had a very special form of education. Time does not suffice to bring all of those details to you. But these children were laboring. They were working. They were growing their food. They were studying the scriptures. They were memorizing the scriptures. They were trained for missionary activity. I mean, everything you think about what true education should be was happening right there. Wonderful stories. You can tell lots of great stories about the Waldenses, but they're a part of this grand sweep and scope of the truth of how children are trained and educated throughout history. God's methods coming to the fore right there in, the, in, in the, the early ages. This is before the Protestant Reformation. I mean, these guys had original copies of the Bible that they had copied. I mean, they, were, they would painstakingly be writing these things out to preserve copies, to share copies before the printing press, before the Protestant Reformation. They were out there doing this, educating their children according to that divine plan, not just going and recklessly learning from the, the schools of the world. They would go out there and they would be missionaries in those once they were of age. But this was the Dark Ages church in a nutshell. I mean, a, a picture tells a thousand words, right? If you dissented against the papal powers of Europe, the priest class, if you will, if you said, no, we want to have the Bible in, our, in, in the common tongue, we want to hold to the doctrines of the faith of the scriptures and not, not these distortions of the church, well, there was one place for you, right? And, and so they were persecuted. They were burned to the stake. All sorts of terrible things, inquisitions, tortures, every form of, of, of mayhem and, and, and murderous uh, plots of evil that took place. We won't recount all of that. But the, the, the most important part of that from the educational standpoint was they tried to keep people illiterate. They tried to keep people not reading the Bible in the common tongue. They did not want people understanding truth for themselves. So stamp out education completely was the goal there. But then something kind of upset that apple cart just a bit. 
It was called the printing press, and it was called Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation and Gutenberg's printing press, now printing off Reformation tracts copies of the Bible in the German tongue and subsequently the other common languages instead of being locked away in the Latin tongue only for the priests to to, uh, have access to. Now all the people have access to the Bible. And they're learning to read. They're learning to understand truth. And there's a general awakening, an enlightenment, a reformation of Christianity. The Protestant Reformation, we call it. It's a beautiful time in history where much learning is taking place. True education starting to come alive again. But there was a counter-reformation. Do you know about the Jesuit order? This was the Society of Jesus, they called it, a priest or order of priests that that set about to counter the Reformation in the 1500s. So we're we're about here right now. And these guys had a specific goal with regard to education. Okay, listen to the historian Bertrand Russell, not looking at this from a religious angle at all, but looking at this to see how social engineers tend to control society. That was his interest. And Bertrand Russell, the uh, 20th century writer, wrote this. The Jesuits provided one sort of education for the boys who were to become ordinary men of the world and another for those who were to become members of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit Society. So they they, they wanted to educate the masses with one sort of education, ordinary men. Here's the goal. Ordinary men and women will be expected to be docile, industrious, punctual, thoughtless, and contented. So wait a minute. It's called education. It's trying to produce thoughtlessness, trying to produce docility. I mean, wasn't this training in the Old Testament times of home education in the country, wasn't that producing strong men with noble independence, with nobility of character and stability of purpose, who would stand for truth, stand for right, though the heavens may fall? That was God's idea. The devil's idea is to produce just Compliance. We're going to get all the young people in the, in, the, in the education systems of Europe to learn compliance, to learn docility, to learn thoughtlessness. So as we think about our kids, we've got to really take this one seriously. I love the quotation from the book Education that says that our youth should not be mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. They should be taught to be thinkers, not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts because we've been given the power to think and to do. We are image bearers of God, right? He's given us an amazing power to think and to do, to to be empowered, to spread ideas, to share truth, to do wonderful things, to be be inventive and and, and, and ingenuitive and all of these great things that what it means to be human, an image bearer of God. Well, this was being stamped out by the priest class of Europe. No more. We want complete docility, complete compliance training, complete thoughtlessness. And this is a statement then from the, uh, let's fast forward now to, I'm going to fall off the stage eventually here, but if we go from the, uh, the, the 1500s, we go now to the 1800s, okay? And this is where we're going to spend most of the rest of the time. Because it was the late 1700s and then into the 1800s, of course, that the Prussian nation was, was coming into its own. And the, the Prussians were famous, became famous for a couple of things. Prussian schooling, Prussian education, which went global and is a model of education that's been followed worldwide. And also their well-drilled soldiers, right? The Prussian, the Prussian drilling that, that, that's become famous worldwide. Now, how did they get to the point where they had... This, this, this militaristic mindset in Prussia. Well, they had been defeated by Napoleon, humiliated. And as a nation, they said, ah, oh, we will never let this happen again. We will be the strongest industrial power in Europe 
and we will become the great, the great empire. So we need to have a strong industrial capacity and a strong military. And what we need for that is compliant workers, compliant soldiers. We need thoughtlessness, uh, docility, etc. Kind of like the Jesuits were doing over here for a religious purpose. Now you have for a secular imperial governmental purpose the same idea. Now I'm going to give you a quote from the, one of the greatest uh, minds and, and, and orators on Prussian schooling. And he gave an address to the German nation. His name was Johann Gottlieb Fichte. And he said, here's the means and purpose for education. Education should provide the means to... Now, before I finish the quote, you could put lots of good things in there, right? You could say, bring redemption, right? Education and redemption are one. We heard that earlier. Education should provide the means to help children develop a, a, an ability to make a living. Education should provide the means to help young people develop the character of Christ. Education should provide the means to help children and youth become thinkers, not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. Education should provide the means so we could make a list of like a hundred awesome things, right? Here's what they said, though. Education should provide the means to destroy free will. If you want to influence the student at all, he goes on, you must do more than merely talk to him. You must fashion him and fashion him in such a way that he simply cannot will otherwise than what you wish him to will. Whoa, you're going to look at that. That's, that's actually the educational philosophy of this mindset of false education that is now competing with God's original plan of true education. They're going stamp out creativity, ingenuity, individuality, destroy free will. Make it so that they cannot will otherwise than what you wish them to will. So they don't have a will anymore. You create automatons. And we'll actually see that quotation just a little bit later. So Prussian schooling was born. And it was uh, the famous 1800s movement where you basically uh, inculcate the masses with, with the rudiments of learning. You give them the illusion of an education, but really it is a dumbed down, generalized curriculum where you're not truly challenging and getting critical thinking. And it's not biblically based. It's not trying to create people who say, where God says to us, come let us reason together. And we can discern truth from error. No, this is not a part of modern worldly schooling methods. And this matters a lot to us, because this schooling method we're going to see in our time in just a moment. But the Prussians, basically their method was, we're going to get the children very young. That's step one. Very important. We've got to get them from a very young age, away from their parents, away from their home, so we can do this shaping from an early age. But not just that. We're going to, we're going to inculcate this, this sort of factory-style schooling and this, this, this methodology in the youth by having everything very standardized. And all the five-year-olds will be with five-year-olds. All the eight-year-olds will be with eight-year-olds. All the 12-year-olds will be with 12-year-olds. And so there, there's age segregation taking place. There will be a long school day, a full school year, and just a lot of sitting in classrooms in these large groups of students with one teacher and lots of students. All the curriculum will be standardized and mandated from the top down from the central government. Teachers will undergo a, tra a training system and you'll have a national curriculum that will then move forward. And you can have this standardized system that does exactly what we're trying to do. And we'll, we'll teach some of the state myths of history along the way and produce the, the, the soldiers and military and, and, and industrial people that we need. So... We're not really thinking about deep reading and critical thinking and uh, creativity and trying to, you know, unleash the, 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 the individuality of the child. No, none of that. Of course, we want docility, thoughtlessness, etc. 
What does that have to do with us today? Well, the year was 1844. What a significant year if you know your Bible prophecy from Daniel 8. 1844, Horace Mann, the father of American public schooling, which, you know, you might say these, these people had a lot of ideals and, and, and positive altruistic things to say and to do, but, you know, infused with that was taking their cues from the Prussians because Horace Mann had visited Prussia in 1843. And when he visited Prussia, he went over there to learn a little bit about how Prussian education works. He's, he, well, we might want to do something similar over here in the United States. We're kind of a burgeoning nation, you know, rising slowly, as you read about in Revelation 13. And maybe we'll do it like them. So he went there. The school was not in session, so he, he studied some of their papers, did some interviews, came back, and he said, the Prussian education system is awesome, and we've got to do it here. And the year that he visited there, 1843, the year that he came back and issued his second annual report to the Boston, Massachusetts School Committee was the year 1844. It got the ball rolling for public education in America because he said, we're going to have statewide, and if we dream this right, all the states will get on board. We'll have nationwide compulsory schooling from an early age, just like they're doing over there. We'll do the same thing here. And they had a lot of success. It took a little while to get, to get moving. It took a half century, really, for this to get in place. But it all started there. Now, amazingly, or maybe you'd say not so amazingly, because the Lord knows this is going on, he's going to intervene. He's going to bring an alternative to this, right? You've got this public school system forming in America that is not God's true education method, right? It's going to be generally uh, you know, secular education, and, and the methods won't be according to the methods that, that, that we learn about in, in, in our councils in the book Education. So what does he do? Well, in the face of this controversy over education, we have some good counsel that actually says, watch out for these Prussian aspects of schooling in our school formation. Because if we're going to have Christian schools that counter this, we don't want them to be like that, right? So as I was reading through our councils on education, I came across things where I was like, whoa, that is countering Prussian-style schooling. Wow, that one right there, too. Take a look at this. This is from Second Manuscript Releases, and it's talking about the system of grading. First, when you read that, you're like, A minuses and C pluses and Bs, right? Grades? No. This is age grading the students, okay? The system of having all the five-year-olds with the five-year-olds and the nine-year-olds, etc., together with their only their own immediate age group, it says that system of grading is a hindrance to the pupil's real progress. Some pupils are slow at first, and the teacher needs to exercise great patience, but these pupils may, after a short time, learn so rapidly as to astonish him. Others may appear to be very brilliant, but time may show that they have blossomed too suddenly. The system of confining children rigidly to grades is not wise. Now, of course, they didn't use the term Prussian schooling and use the, the, the jargon that historians use here, but you're kind of seeing what's going on there, aren't you? It's like this trend had started here, and it was becoming the trendy thing to do, and they're like, hey, wait a minute, this is not wise to be confining children to age-segregated grades in this manner because it might hinder their true progress. Uh, A.T. Jones responded in this conversation and said, the sooner grades are done away with so that the teacher can get close to the children, the better. And Mrs. E.G. White responded with this, I know that some better system can be found just as soon as our instructors learn the true principles of education. So if we can get the true education blueprint, we don't have to do it the Prussian way, right? We can do it God's way. Now notice here's another one. Education, page 207. Here in the classroom, speaking of in the classroom, here little children 
have to spend from three to five hours a day. Breathing air that is laden with impurity and perhaps infected with the germs of disease. No wonder that in the schoolroom, the foundation of lifelong illness is so often laid. Do you remember in the Raising the Remnant session, we heard we should equalize the mental and the physical taxation? Well, here it's saying children are in a classroom sitting in desks for like three hours a day. Now, to us, we're like three hours. That'd be, that's like a half day. I kind of like that, right? But back then, they, they were aghast that this, 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 this long school day, long school year, age-segregated concept, the Prussian-style thing, was slipping into American society. And, and the, 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 the rocks were crying out here and saying, this is not necessarily a good thing, right? I mean, you're, you're indoors for so long. You get the impure air. Kids need to be as free as lambs outdoors, much more equalizing those, those powers. We don't want them in there for three to five hours a day. The little children, it said, as you Get older, you can spend a little more, but many parents have kept their children at school nearly the year round. Doesn't that kind of sound like what the Prussians were doing, right? The monotony of continual study wearies the mind, we read. So you're hearing some quotes that really applied in that historical context and still apply to us today because you kind of notice we're still struggling with some of these very same things, don't you? But that was a beautiful thing that the Lord was bringing an alternative. Now, you'll see it was really uh, a paralleled history here in the 19th century, in the 1800s, when you look at a few of these examples. Look at this guy. His name is Wilhelm Wundt, right? A good German name there. Uh, the Prussian schooling theorist, the prophet of modern schooling, they call him. Now, interesting that they call him the prophet of modern schooling, because also the Advent movement has the gift of prophecy, so there's a counterfeit being formed here at the same time. Look at the years of his prophecy, if you will, of, of, of Prussian schooling. He wrote from 1853 to 1920. Does that sound kind of like it's overlapping quite a bit with another uh, tenure of a, a, a true prophet of God? And notice he wrote 53,735 pages. Like, that kind of sounds like the number of pages. Is it 200,000 pages or something from the spirit of prophecy? So interesting how we've got the true prophet. We've got the counterfeit prophet here uh, as far as education goes. Then we've got John Dewey who said this. Notice the religious terminology he uses for this, this schooling movement. He says, Every teacher should realize he is a social servant set apart for the maintenance of the proper social order. So this is not just about academics. This is about creating a new society with the schools. We'll get into that more. He says, The teacher always is the prophet of the true God and the usherer in of the true kingdom of God. Now you thought it was just a public education system to help kids learn their academics. No. The, one of the most important philosophers of modern education, John Dewey, said the whole idea here is we're ushering in the true kingdom of God because this is an idealist, utopian movement of, of the, what they call the progressive era to reform and change society in a way where we can usher in a perfect society, a millennial society. Well, we know that the millennium will take place after the second coming of Jesus. We know we are ushering in, if you will, the true coming of Christ by our mission work. We hasten the coming of Christ by our good deeds and spreading the, the gospel message and the three angels' messages. Well, the devil's got his counterfeit right there in modern schooling. The prophet of God, the true kingdom of God, is the education. Now, notice 1872 is when our church was given their first testimony on education that was written out and was, all right, here's what we've got to do. We've got to start some church schools and we're going to do this. It was 1872, the same year that there was a circular of information in April of 1872 by the U.S. Bureau of Education where they talked about, oh man, there's too much educational schooling going on. 
They, they, they said people are having knowledge inculcated. So they, they were decrying the fact that inculcating knowledge was allowing the masses to be able to perceive and calculate their grievances. And the elite continued on and said, well, such an enabling is bound to retard the growth of industry. You see, America was now in our industrial revolution, and you have the same mindset as the Prussians had, and that is, we kind of want the masses to have a generalized education so that they will not be able to question the status quo, so that they will become compliant workers in the industrial machine. If we have too much educational schooling going on, where they can kind of think for themselves, and they can calculate their grievances, and like, hey, maybe the system isn't that great. Maybe we want to form a business for ourselves. And some of these industrial titans were famous for saying things like, you know, having, having multiple businesses competing for, for, for uh, goods and services is, is a bad thing. And so, well, we want the people in their place. And so this educational schooling thing might not be very good for our bottom line, said the circular of information from the, uh, from the U.S. government in 1872. It just so happens that was the very same year that we were inspired to start moving toward true education. And the examples continue. This was 1872 that the necessity of establishing such schools, schools of the prophets, in our time, was urged upon me very strongly, she wrote, because of... Now, before I finish the quote, I'm going to have you guess. Remember in ancient Israel, God had original plan. Uh, the original plan was home education. We're going to do this thing in the home, in the country, laboring with the parents, all that, right? He wanted to do that in Israel, but it didn't really work out. We couldn't do the home education thing only in Israel because of, you remember, the cruel neglect of many parents to properly educate their children in the home. Fast forward to the 1800s. You've got this brand new Adventist movement and all these people coming into the truth and we're all struggling, kind of like we still all are today. Why do you think, the quote says, the necessity for establishing schools is urged upon me very strongly because of. Now, there's many reasons why to establish schools, but take a wild guess as to one of those what one of those might be. Given the history of Israel, same thing here. We're repeating it. It says, because of the cruel neglect of many parents to properly educate their children in the home. Isn't that interesting? Just like in ancient Israel, we're repeating the same history in the 19th century. We're struggling to do the patriarchs thing, the original Eden model. We're struggling with home education. So God says, we're going to have schools. And it's urged upon me very strongly, says the prophet, that we were going to have to have these schools. It says schools should be established. We need to have true education schools in the face of all of this Prussian onslaught, in the face of the home struggling. Schools should be established with teachers who will adopt the same plans that were followed in the schools of the prophets. Now, this is Elwood Coverley, one of the architects of 20th century schooling. He wrote kind of the textbook on the history of American schooling and how it got started. And here's what he had to say. The school reorganized its teaching along lines dictated by the new psychology of instruction, which had come to us from abroad, from Prussia, is what the implication is there. When did that happen? Well, interestingly, beginning about 1880 to 1885, American public schools began to experience a new but steady change in purpose. Now, he's going on and saying it's great because we became Prussianized, but what was that? 1880 to 1885, they started to become Prussianized. And then in 1888, the Senate Committee on Education came out with this statement. 1888, you know, that's an important year. These guys, 
Jones and Wagoner, critically thinking, biblically discerning the truth of righteousness by faith. The church is experiencing revival and the possibility of really marching forward with the everlasting gospel and finishing the work. Big, important year in the history of the Adventist movement, right? 1888 also, the false education. We believe that education is one of the principal causes of discontent of late years manifesting itself among the laboring classes. So in other words, we once again want the masses to have that dumbed down docility training curriculum, 1888. Now let's go to 1890s. By the 1890s, every state in the union, except one, which trailed just a bit, but we had basically a national, I'm over here, national compulsory schooling system in place. Compulsory, meaning you're required to. It wasn't all enforced. Some people were escaping that here and there. But there were laws on the books in every state but one saying children must be attending the schools and, and, and at such and such age. It was very early. It was very becoming Prussianized starting in 1880 to 1885, becoming Prussianized by the 1880s. It, we, we had a pretty well national Prussianized school system on, on the roll, and, and it would be becoming more so in the next coming years. But why did I bring up the 1890s? Well, whilst the devil is moving this way with false education, the Lord is moving this way alongside to compete with it to give us the other option. You know what happened in the 1890s? There was a wonderful, wonderful revival in Battle Creek College under the leadership of one E.A. Sutherland, one of the greatest educational reformers and minds in history. And as, as the leader of this, 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 this school in Battle Creek, this college, the, the youth came to him and they were on fire for God, on fire for the mission work. And they said, well, what shall we do with this? What, how do we go and spread the truth? He said, here's what you do. Go out throughout North America and form church schools. And wherever there, and by the way, he had some guidance and counsel on this, right? Wherever there are even just a handful of students at a church, start a church school. They're popping up everywhere in the 1890s. So the Seventh-day Adventist church school system was being formed in the 1890s, right at the same time that the public school system was really coming into its own and becoming Prussianized. Do you find this to be a coincidence or is there a great controversy going on? Absolutely. And the purpose was to find all these children all over the place and train them for the mission work. You know, our schools were founded as missionary training institutions. Our homes are to be missionary training institutions. That's God's plan for them. Now, if you want to understand the true insidious nature of this public schooling scheme, and by the way, when I say public schooling, I'm not trying to impugn the motives or character of anybody who works in the public schools today. I used to myself. I know lots of good and nice people who are trying to help children in the public schools. The history is what it is, and this was the movement and the, the underlying motivation of the founders of this system. You're going to hear it from their, their mouth themselves right now. This is the John D. Rockefeller Education Board. These were the guys who were funding this in the 1900s, making this a massively well-funded national public schooling movement and system. Here's what they said. In our dreams, we have limitless resources. And the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. That kind of sounds like the Jesuit education, the Prussian education, doesn't it? I mean, that's what we've got here in America now in the, in the 20th century. This was 1913. He goes on and says, the present education conventions fade from their minds and unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive rural folk. Now notice he's talking about the rural folk because this was the time of urbanization. 
everybody moving into the big cities, industrialization, the big factories forming. And so rural people are coming in, getting a, a good schooling, if you will, to learn how to become a part of this, this industrial machine. Now, notice they say what, what they're not trying to do. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. Wow. We have not to raise up from among them authors, editors, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for, for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen, of whom we have an ample supply. You're looking at that going, what did they say? I thought that the educational work of schools was trying to help kids become these things. And most people are. But the reason that teachers in the schools today are banging their heads against the wall a lot of times is because the system was designed, conceived in iniquity, if you will. And so the standardization, the standardized testing, all of the systems that we still struggle with today are, are, were birthed during this industrial era, which gave us a certain model of schooling borrowed from the Prussians that is still, we're struggling to shake off today. And we can, as the people of God, we can do it in the home. We can do it in the schools of the prophets. But as far as the general society goes, most teachers aren't in like shadowy, smoke-filled rooms reading this and going, right? I mean, that sounds pretty nefarious, but that's what the founders of this system were trying to do. That's a fact of history. And so people in the system today are trying to do their best to, 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 to do not do that, but struggling nonetheless, because what we see on this next one is this is really working. You might say, well, that's some... That's some scheme and dream that they have. Like that's going to work. It has worked. Watch this. This is William Torrey Harris. He was the U.S. Commissioner of Education in the 1890s when the schools were becoming Prussianized. He probably did more to Prussianize American schools than any individual person. And at the end of that era, he was able to say, 99 students out of 100 are automata. That would be automatons. That would be robots. He says, 99 students out of 100 are careful to walk in prescribed paths, careful to follow the prescribed custom. Now, time out. Should our children be careful to walk in the law of God and in the truth of the Bible and in the uh, obedience of their parents and their teachers? Yes, absolutely. And I've got to say that because some people out there from more of like a hippie Luciferian angle take these very same quotes and they're like, we need to have free minds and let children raise themselves and have no discipline. And so just be careful with that because you could jump over into another pit of destruction. Over here, you got totalitarian Prussian education, no thinking. Over here, you've got no discipline, no direction, no discipling, and children have no direction from adults, which is, which is just as evil as this, or maybe more. But anyway, back to the quote. He says, the, the fact that we've got 99 out of 100 as, as robots is not an accident, but is the result of substantial, what he calls education. It's the opposite, but he says, this is the result of substantial education, which scientifically defined is the subsumption of the individual. Did you hear what he said is the definition of education? He said, here's my definition. Scientific definition of education is to subsume the individuality of the child. You know what subsume means? Let me use an analogy here, okay? You've got a, a lump of Play-Doh, okay? And you've got an, a little bit of Play-Doh here, okay? This is the individual. This is the group, okay? To subsume this individual, you just take them and stuff them in there and, okay, the, there's no more individuality, right? He's been subsumed by the collective. You've got automatons, is the way he put it, non-thinking people. No longer, I mean, at some point, no longer people, right? He says they're basically robots. So I said this has worked. Watch this. In a, in a study on divergent thinking, they took children aged three to five, and they found that 98% of them scored as what would qualify as creative genius. 
if you have a three to five year old, you know this already, right? They're, they're off the wall with their ideas. They're like, where'd you come up with that? They're so fun, right? Because they, they think creatively. They think outside the box. And, you know, that can't be in disobedience, but we can, we can value and affirm individuality and creativity. And so we look at that and we're like, we're all given this power akin to that of the creator, the power to think and to do. And it is the work of true education to develop this power in the young so that they will be thinkers, not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. Do you know the quote from the book Education? Awesome quote. They naturally have it. But after five years of schooling, they retested the same children, and only 32% of them still had that same ability. So two-thirds of them, in five years of schooling, no longer had the ability that we all naturally had at age three to five. After five more years of school, only 10% still have the same ability. And by age 25, only 2% of the population remain as divergent thinkers. Is that not sad? That is really sad. It's flipped. Did you notice? It was 98% had the ability. And then by age 25, only 2% have it. So 98% don't have it by age 25. The devil's really done a number with this Jesuit-style, Prussian-style, modern schooling system. And so God's got an answer, and it's called the home. It's called the true education school of the prophets. But the devil knows that, so he's got to attack the home. He's got to go after the home. This is Edward Ellsworth Ross, the founder, the writer of the book Social Control. And this was what he said about the family. He says, our goal here as the social engineers, as they call themselves, is to collect little plastic lumps of human dough from private households and shape them on the social kneading board. You see where I got the analogy from. We're shaping them on the social kneading board here, but we have to first collect them from their homes because the family is going to get in the way of this great social experiment. The family is going to get in the way big time because they can create individuals and help noble independence to form among the students and the children. This is how Arthur Calhoun put it. He said, Here's what's happening. The process is the child passes more and more into the custody of community experts who are qualified to perform the complexer functions of parenthood. Wow, that's kind of creepy, I guess. Like, community experts, we will raise the children. We're going to get them at a very early age. Parents will take it from here because we know this is too complex for God's institution of the family. In particular, said Elwood Coverley, the attitude toward control of the child is likely to change. Each year, the, the child is coming to belong more to the state and less and less to the parent. The plea in defense that the child is my child will not be accepted much longer by society. Whew. Now, that was a prophetic statement, so to speak, because here we are now in a time where you hear broadcast on the cable news networks the idea that children don't belong to their parents. We need to get past the idea that children belong to their parents and belong to their families. We need to have a collective view of parenting. These are our children, say state officials, on public broadcasting. Here we have a statement by Harold Rugg in The Great Technology in 1933. He wrote, we're going to, we're going to build the, the scientific reconstruction of our whole social order. How do we do that? Well, we have to create a new public mind. A new public mind is to be created. How? Well, only by creating tens of millions of individual minds and welding them into a new social mind, singular mind. Through the schools of the world, we shall disseminate a new conception of government, one that will embrace all the activities of men, one that will postulate the need of scientific control. 
So he says, we're going to bring in a new system here. And this is where we get into the last days. Because you know that in the last days, the whole world wonders after the beast. And the state even uh, extends itself to legislating on matters of religious conscience. All the elements of human activity come under the purview of the totalitarian state. And how do you develop that? Well, you've got to do it through the education system. You create their minds, you weld them into a new social mind, and you inculcate into that new social mind a new conception of the role of of, the, of, of government. Instead of preserving liberty and, and life liberty and the pursuit of happiness, we have the state mandating religious matters to the people in the last days in Revelation 13. So this system is being built through the schools of the world. To quote him, through the schools of the world, we will disseminate this new conception of government, one that will postulate a need for scientific control and embrace all the activities of men. Now back to Bertrand Russell. He said it this way, it is to be expected that advances in physiology and psychology will give governments much more control over individual mentality than they now have, even in totalitarian countries. Did you catch that? He says, here we are, the social engineers in the West, through the education systems, and if you've seen media on the brain, you know, through the media, the mainstream media, the entertainment media, through all of our mechanisms of propaganda and mind control, we can have more control over individual thinking than even the totalitarian governments of the communists and the fascists and all of these people can have. We in the West, through our social engineering, he called it the scientific dictatorship. He says we can have absolute control over the minds of men. Here's how we do it. Well, first of all, Fichte, Johann Gottlieb Fichte, the guy who said education should aim to destroy free will, right? He laid it down that education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. Diet, injections, and injunctions, so the health message really counts for this, diet, injections, and injunctions will combine from a very early age, a very early age, get the children very young, and then we can produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable, and any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. You might say that's a pretty nightmarish dream that these guys were talking about in a dystopic future of control. This sounds like it's out of some you know, fiction dystopian novel and impossible. You know, when you read prophecy, it sounds unlikely from a human perspective to see a future where you have uh, days of worship regulated, religious expression regulated by laws, but it's coming. And so we see the systems of the schooling have brought us there. Now I want to really go back and see God's method, because if this is going on through the schools of the world, we've got to see an awesome countering of that, and we do. It's called the Schools of the Prophets, 1872 and forward. Here we go with the Advent movement and the schools that we were called to form. Before I show you this next slide, I want you to remember that it was in, in, in Israel, God formed schools because of the failing home. Do you remember this? And in our time, in the 18, 1872, we were called also to form schools because the home was, was struggling. And so home education, as it was identified and dreamed in the patriarchal times in the Garden of Eden, God's original method needed some help, needed some augmentation because we were struggling with that. So if we're going to build schools as Seventh-day Adventists, which they did in the 1890s, if we're going to have schools today in the 21st century, what, of what character ought they to be? What sorts of schools should they be? Should they be just like the Prussian schools? Well, of course not. But in what way should they be different? 
This quote has a blank in it, and I want you to think about it before I put it up there. It says, our schools should be as blank as possible. This hit me like a ton of bricks when I saw this quotation. Because as I was thinking through the narrative of why we have schools, uh, we have schools because home education was God's original design and plan, and not everybody is, 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 is able to and willing to and succeeding at doing that. So if the home is the main educational institution and we have to have a school to help out with a failing home, what should the school be like? should be like the home, shouldn't it? Our schools should be as home-like as possible. The analogy I use here is if you are vitamin D deficient, during this time of the year in the winter up in Michigan, many people become vitamin D deficient where I'm from. You don't go to the health food store and get a vitamin C supplement because of, to, to cure your vitamin D deficiency, right? If we are home deficient, and God's patriarchal design here from the Garden of Eden is not really working out for us because we're not working the program correctly, and God's like, all right, I'm going to help you out. We're going to have some institutions. We're not going to make those schools dramatically different from homes. Otherwise, it would defeat the purpose of helping to stop the gap where the home is failing, right? This is a stopgap measure. This is a, a supplement. This is a supplement, if you will, like the vitamin D. We need to do the same thing that's happening here, but do it in a different place with, with teachers that, that love those children. Let's look at some more quotations on how home-like this should be. It says, our schools should be family schools where every student will receive help from his teachers as the members of the family should receive help in the home. We go on with another one. Our school homes, they used to board, the, in boarding academies, they would board the students in homes instead of, you know, just like prison-style dormitories. They were in actual homes because our schools are to be as home-like as possible, right? Our school homes have been established that as far as possible, A, take a wild guess, home atmosphere may be provided. Teachers who are placed in charge of these homes are to act as fathers and mothers, showing an interest in the students, one and all, such as parents show in their children. When the youth come to our colleges, they should not be made to feel that they have come among strangers. There should be fathers and mothers in Israel who will watch for their souls. Parents, guardians, place your children in training schools where the influences are similar to those of a rightly conducted home school. Now, this was before the homeschool movement of modern times, but the idea that the home is the original school is supposed to be like a good home. So when you come to our school, it should feel like a good home. It should replace a good home in a way, not replace completely. It should augment the home that's struggling, which all of ours are. I don't mean to cast any sort of condemnation on those who, like, we, we need to put our kids in a school of the prophets. I mean, many people do. In fact, we're, we're told that this should be the privilege of every child if they need it to be able to be put in our schools. In, in, in the, the spiritual atmosphere, of course, there would be a savor of life unto life. This one is, now, now as, as you see these next few quotes, you'll notice, okay, these are the features of the, Seventh-day Adventist education blueprint. Have you ever heard of the blueprint? It's like all the, all the bullet-pointed list of the things our schools are supposed to be doing and doing differently from worldly schools. Now through these lenses of understanding this narrative and understanding how, how Prussian schooling was so unhomelike and how home education was God's original plan and ideal and how if we're going to have a school, we want it to mimic the home. Now that you get that, you'll see all the features of the blueprint start to make more sense because they mimic a good home home school, like this one. It says, our teachers should not think that their work ends with giving instruction from books. Several hours each day should be devoted to working with the students in some line of manual training. In no case should this be neglected. That's just like a home, right? You don't just 
have class with your kids and then and then end the day. No, in a good home, the students are the children are with their parents all day and the other stuff we learned in the other session. So same thing in the schools. Your work doesn't end with just academics. No, we're working together with the students. Teachers are. Now, you remember the, uh, the, the, the schools of the prophets, right, in the Old Testament? That's a picture from the My Bible Friends book where the boy with the borrowed axe and the axe head flew off. And this was Elisha's school. This is, uh, this is the, the schools of the prophets model. And so that's the same thing we see, working with the students. Here's another quotation. Teachers often fail of coming sufficiently into social relation with their pupils. In some schools, the teacher is always with his pupils in their hours of recreation. Sounds like a good conducted homeschool, doesn't it? He unites in their pursuits, accompanies with them in their excursions, and seems to make himself one with them. Well would it be for our schools were this practice more generally followed. So can you imagine schools? I mean, I used to be a teacher, so when I think of the word school and education, I think of the classroom, I think of the academic aspect. But when we're talking about the education of our children, we're talking about manual labor, the teachers with the students in their hours of recreation. It's home-like. We're going to see more features of the blueprint here. Students need to become familiar with the duties of daily life. They should be taught their domestic duties thoroughly and well. And no more study should be taken than can be attended to without neglecting the household duties. As a former teacher, I'm looking at that quote going, does not compute. Like, I don't, household duties? Like, how is that a part of the curriculum? Well, that's a Prussian mindset speaking. The home-like school, of course, is going to teach home duties. That's hugely important. What do you spend the bulk of your day doing, right, in the home? A lot of home duties. This quotation really knocked my socks off. If need be, a young woman can dispense with a knowledge of French and algebra or even the piano. But it is indispensable that she learn to make good bread. <laughs> Again, as a former educator schooled in the methods of this world, Prussianized schooling, I look at that and I'm going, uh-uh, no, 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 no. Algebra, academics come first. Nope. Academics are important. I hope there's no students listening going, Mom, I'm not going to do my algebra homework, right? I'm going to slack off at all my academics. Let's not go overboard with that. But you heard the point here. You cannot take too many studies to uh, you know, crowd in on your home duties, learning your home duties. And if need be, you need to sacrifice a little bit of the academics. Make sure you know how to have quality food made, nutritious food. I mean, that's the gut quality affects the brain, affects people's nutrition, affects people's character and decision making and deceiving times. Ultimately, their eternal destiny can be, can be uh, weighed in depending on how we eat. I mean, if you're eating a bunch of garbage, you make a bunch of bad choices. I mean, this could be a bad thing. So this is a lot more important than algebra. And nothing against algebra, but and eternal matters are more important, aren't they? It says, and to perform efficiently the many duties pertaining to homemaking. Boys as well as girls. So this is, this is truly progressive, right? In a good sense of the word. Boys as well as girls should gain a knowledge of household duties. People hear the first part of the quote and they're like, oh, that's Victorian era nonsense, just putting the women in the kitchen and all of that. And no, it says boys too. And girls can learn to use the saw and the hammer as well as the rake and the hoe. So isn't that, I told you earlier how this is pretty cutting edge for, for this time. This is 120 years ago. This wasn't commonly said. But we're willing to burst you know, unnecessary boundaries on things that are just social constructs and just silly things. Like the lady can't you know, use the, 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 the hoe and the, and the rake. 
or a young man can't cook. No, we all got to be pitching in and doing all these things. I like that. There can be no employment more important than that of housework. To cook well, to place wholesome food upon the table in an inviting manner requires intelligence and experience, whether men or women, again. They should learn to mend, mend their clothes, wash, keep their own clothes in order. They should be able to cook their own meals. They should be familiar with agriculture and with mechanical pursuits. So do we have these in our curriculum for our children, in our home schools and in our schools of the prophets? These are important curricular items. Ahead of algebra, ahead of French, ahead even of the piano. Isn't it interesting how piano is like even, it wasn't piano, French, or even algebra. It was the piano. I mean, music, this is important, right? All of, the, all of them are important. The academics, the algebra are important. I know the math teachers are getting mad at me right now. It's important. But let's, let's keep everything in balance here according to God's design. What do students carry with them when they leave school? Have they been educated to be true fathers and mothers? That never dawned on me as a teacher. Like, you don't come to school to learn to be a father and mother. You come to school to learn, in my history class, U.S. history or economics or U.S. government. It's like, have they been educated to be true fathers and mothers? Can they stand at the head of a family as wise instructors? The only education worthy of its name is that which leads young men and women to be Christ-like, which fits them to bear life's responsibilities, fits them to stand at the head of their families. So if our schools are to be as home-like as possible and they are to be like a well-conducted home school, they're going to teach children how to run a home, how to do home duties, how to cook, how to clean, how to fix, how to build, how to, how to grow things in agriculture, how to stand at the head of families. This is part of true education curriculum, not just part of it. It's a, it's a central core of it because we are home deficient, so we need a home supplement called Schools of the Prophets. Here's another one. Of all the features of an education to be given in our school homes, school homes, so this is boarding in homes, what's the most important? The religious Exercises, speaking of morning and evening worship, are the most important. So you have morning and evening worship together with your students in your school homes. The teacher should carefully study the disposition and character of his pupils that he may adapt his teaching to their peculiar needs. Now that is a challenge in Prussian-style schooling. I used to have 100 students in the day. They file in 20 to 30 at a time, sometimes 120 students in the day. I didn't know a single one of them, maybe a couple of them, because you know, they'd come at lunch or whatever, but I couldn't carefully study the disposition and unique traits and different angles and perspectives and giftedness of each child. I mean, we would talk about that in educational philosophy, like this is what you're supposed to do, but then when it came down to it, nobody's doing it because you can't really. I mean, you can do a little bit of it here and there, but how many students did Jesus have? 12, right? Only 12. Most families aren't comprised of any more than 12 kids. So if our schools are to be as home-like as possible, we've got to be rethinking this issue of, of, of can we make it home-like? Can we really have a close relationship with, the, with the, the teachers and the school personnel and the students just like we can in our homes? So we're thinking about our schools of the prophets and what kinds of schools we have here. Are we having morning and evening worship? We're mimicking the home. Here's another example. Let the older assist the younger. Well, that doesn't sound Prussian, does it? In Prussian, there is no older and younger interacting at all in the Prussian schools. In our schools, we can have the older and the younger working together, the strong and the weak working together. I thought about Jesus' school, his 12. Andrew and Peter were brothers, and they were in the same class. And they probably weren't the same age, were they? But they were in the same class, weren't they? These first disciples, in these first disciples, was presented a marked diversity The dangers of the young are greatly increased as they are thrown into the society of a large number of their own age. Prussian schooling is dangerous, is what that quote is saying. Here in the school homes, 
Students are daily surrounded by opportunities which, if improved, will greatly aid in developing the social traits of their characters. Time out. Did you hear that? It says, it's important for children to develop social skills. We want our children to have social traits of character. Did you notice what it didn't say? It didn't say the best way to have children develop socially is to have them interact almost exclusively only with kids their own age and to have banquets and homecomings and football games and all of these things that the world tells us is how you have social skills. Now, I remember as a kid, and, and there's this myth out there still today, that people who are home educated according to God's original plan, just, just homeschooled all the way through, that, well, they're, they're social misfits, misfits and they're awkward and they don't have good social skills, okay? That, my friends, is a myth. And I can tell you that not only from the research, because research has shown that socialization and social skills is higher among this group than among public educated students. But don't just trust the research. You can see it with your own eyes. I've traveled around the country, went to a lot of churches, met a lot of families, met a lot of kids. And the kids who were home educated or had delayed uh, entry into school uh, around age 8 or 10, which is what we're actually supposed to be doing, not the, not the Prussian way of age, age 5, but age 8 or 10 is what, what we've been called to. And I think we've got slides on that coming. But anyway, I meet these kids and I can say, you were homeschooled, weren't you? Or you're, 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 home, you're a homeschool kid, aren't you? And they look at me like, how did you know? Like, you stand out, and, and you can say, well, hopefully it's producing more than just social skills. And yes, it is. It's often, you know, good behavior and these kinds of things. But the thing that strikes me first, the first noticeable thing, is a higher level of social interaction ability with, with adults and people of various ages. Because that's their life. That's their world, right? We're not doing the age segregation thing. And so there's, there's a higher level of socialization. Now, you might say, well, I knew some weird homeschool kids in the 80s or whatever. And it's like, I did too. It's like, well, what, how do you make sense of that. I've got a theory on this. Now, in the 80s, uh, there were very few homeschoolers, right? This was like a brand new movement. The kinds of people who were doing it then were, were, were kind of, you know, on the fringes, if you will. And I say that in a good way. I, I think these people are great, okay? I'm not trying to criticize them. But sometimes the people on the very edge of a movement and they're willing to really stick their neck out and be different, sometimes they're different, right? You know what I mean? Like, sometimes they're a little different, and they, they act a little different, and, and sometimes some of the kids of those families, because their parents are a little different, the kids are a little different, okay? And that's not a bad thing. It's just everybody's unique. But that's my theory about the 80s, because today they look totally different. They act totally different than the ones I knew in the 80s. The homes, like the three homeschool kids I knew in the 80s were all kind of odd. I'll, I'll be honest. They were a little, a little weird. But today it's not the case. So maybe there were just some unique families. We can just put it that way. It's not a negative thing. And I'd much rather have a family where they're, they're a little bit odd socially but they're true to the Bible and they love the Lord and they're not putting their kids on, you know, Halloween and all of that, the trick-or-treating in the movies. And I used to laugh at those kids because they were, oh, not doing those things that all of us are doing. But their families were staying true to God. And so I think that's way cooler if you're into what's cool and socially hip and all of that. You know, that's way cooler in the sight of heaven. The angels think that is just super trendy with the trends of heaven, right? So anyway, good enough on that. You got the quote, here in the school homes, the students are surrounded by opportunities that can help them develop their traits, social traits of character. It says, in the home. We have home schools, or school homes, in our schools of the prophets to help them learn social skills. That's where you learn social skills. Or how about this one? During their school life, as they do canvassing, they they call it handling Christ object lessons and ministry of healing. The students may learn how to approach people courteously and how to exercise tact in conversing with them on different points of present truth. So there's another way to develop social skills is do witnessing. That's great. That's an awesome way. So summing up, these are the bullet points of what we've seen in the blueprint. We are to have schools that are like a rightly conducted homeschool. They are family schools, we read. Teachers which act as fathers and mothers, we read. 
to spend several hours each day in manual labor with the students. We read that teachers are to be always with their students during their hours of recreation. Students are learning all the many domestic duties, indoor and outdoor, just like a well-conducted homeschool, right? Students are learning how to be fathers and mothers, just like they would at home. Most important part of the school day is family worship. The teacher has few students and gets to know each one very well, just like a good home school. Students are with others of various ages, just like a family. Students learn social skills through the home-like setting, through canvassing and witnessing, etc. So, as Christians, particularly in the Seventh-day Adventist movement, this, this message is geared toward the Seventh-day Adventists. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. This message has been given to us to give us two options, all right? We've been given these counsels. we got books and books and books on our bookshelves, right, that, 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 that elucidate, that, that clarify some things that we were a little dull to understand from the Word of God, right? I mean, the sons of the prophets. Most people don't look at that and go, ooh, let's find the model of true education in that. Very few people are out there doing that. So the Lord has really given us a, a magnifying glass to understand what Elisha was What's up to with those boys? They were building things, right? They weren't sitting idly in front of screens and in desks all day. But you get the idea. We have home education, the Eden model, the patriarchs, Jesus' model, and we've got the schools of the prophets. And that is what we just learned about just now. So that's our two options. We're not given the option of Prussian schools. That's not God's plan for our families and our children. We're not given the option of Prussianized schools with a Christian name on it either. We're supposed to have homes and home-like schools, and we've got to have both. But as an individual, you might choose one or the other. Or I guess you wouldn't say I would choose just this because the kids are at home in the afternoon and on the weekends and on vacation and everything. So all of us are doing home education for a large part of it. But here's a quotation that really brings it home to us practically. It says, I beg of parents to place their children where they will not be bewitched by a false education. Their only safety is in learning of Christ. He is the great central light of the world. All other lights, all other wisdom are foolishness. If we think we can go into the world and have our kids in the worldly schools and we're going to try and be an influence that way, we are called to not do that. When a firm barrier built up between us and the world, all other lights, all other wisdom is foolishness. We don't want to be bewitched by a false education that was set in place during the dark ages and is continuing to manifest today. Bewitched. Did you hear the, the spiritual term there? This is not just about how you're going to learn math and how big the chemistry lab is at the big public school down the road or whatever. This is about spiritual controversies. And there is a bewitching effect in this movement of Prussian schooling today. Now, Fast forward to, I'm not going to continue on because I'll be off of the platform over there, but by the 1970s, here we are in our time. By the 1970s, the Prussian schooling system had become so dominant, so vast, that basically the whole country was in this dragnet of the school system. And home education was almost stamped out completely. It was illegal in many states. And the majority of states, as hard as that is for us to believe today, in the 1970s, homeschooling your kids was, was illegal. You know, the Eden model, the patriarchs, home education was against the law in the 1970s in most states. So something happened where God said, we're not done yet. We've, we've, we've raised up some schools of the prophets, 1890s, Adventist church schools and all that. And you might say, well, our schools, some of them are struggling to conform to that blueprint, to be like this home, home style schooling with the, the, the schools of the prophets. And I get that. Um, so, so we've got another option still, don't we? We've got the option of the original method. And they're both important. We want them both to thrive. And so this man was raised up, I believe, in this key juncture in history. His name was... Raymond Moore, and along with his wife, Dorothy Moore. Dr. Raymond Moore is a hugely famous guy, but most people in our church community don't even know who he is. 
He is the founder of the modern homeschooling movement. And he was a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. So he's the guy that sort of like spawned what all the evangelical churches are just flocking toward. And Adventists are sometimes a little embarrassed about for whatever reason. And, you know, I understand we've got our schools. And you don't want to feel that competition. And we'll get into that a little bit in a moment. But I think we should own this guy. And we've got to look back and say this was a major cultural shift in our country. The homeschooling movement. In the 70s, it was illegal. In the 1980s, I mean, you, you got here from Homeschooling in America, a secular text by Joseph Murphy, just a history and a, a, a portrayal of, of homeschooling in America. He wrote, Moore became the most visible and the most celebrated homeschool leader in the nation. Seventh-day Adventist Christian who brought this to the country. And it was through the program of Dr. James Dobson, a Christian broadcast a radio program called Focus on the Family. He was interviewed on there. And at first, Dr. Moore was just a proponent of delayed formal education. He said, you know, really, it's actually better for kids' academic success if they have, don't have so much academics forced on them at age five and six. And like, wait till age eight or 10, and it's better for them. They'll, ex they'll excel more academically if you wait. I wonder where he got that idea from, right? These same councils we're reading here. And he wrote in Harper's Magazine, he got published in Reader's Digest, and kind of went big when he got on the Dr. Dobson radio show. And it was, at first, James Dobson didn't want to hear any of this, because he started saying, you know what, let's not just delay formal education, let's not just do Christian schools, let's just keep our kids at home, let's just home educate them. In 1980, 1979, when he was saying these things, that sounded crazy, right? I mean, that sounded just like nutball stuff. And Dobson was like, oh, I don't know about that, Dr. Moore. You're going a little too far. But then he bought into it. He started to be convinced. And he spread this like wildfire. And it was a beautiful thing. So then just six years later, it went from literally just a few thousand homeschoolers in the country. Only a few thousand in the 70s. Under 10,000. Just a few thousand. Six years later, there were 50,000. Ten years later, by 1995, there were half a million. Five years later, by the year 2000, a million homeschoolers in America. So in just 20 years' time, from 1980 to 2000, a million homeschoolers popped up. And so a, a, a major movement, parts of which are starting to get God's original design, right? Not everybody understood the true education model we have here, and a lot of them are kind of doing, you know, worldly schooling methods at home, but still, it's parents being the influence instead of humanistic, Darwinistic, and all of these, uh, you know, secular humanist uh, ideologies of the public schools coming to the children. It's the parents educating their children in their worldview. And in the last 15 years, we've added at least another million, so we're up to over a million. People are fleeing the public schools in droves, in short, to put it bluntly bluntly and simply. So now we've got the first generation of homeschooled youth from the 90s uh, coming on to the scene in, a bit in the 80s. How are they doing? Well, this chart shows you the average child, so the, the 50th percentile, the public school students, versus the homeschool students in reading, language, math, science, social studies, etc. We're talking about 84th to 89th percentile success in, in academics from home education. And interestingly, the vast majority of these, these parents are not are not trained teachers, and, and, and these, these numbers show up regardless of the education level of the parents or whether they have teaching certificates or not. I mean, it's just kind of a more natural way of living, a little bit more like that old patriarchal way. Baylor University did a study, and they found that their students were four times more likely to get a 4.0 GPA if they were home educated than if they were public school educated. 
So if we do home education or schools of the prophets that are like homes, I mean, we can, we can produce those same results as well. And but who cares about a 4.0 GPA? That's not that important in terms of eternal, eternal matters. So the much, much more important thing is, how are they doing on a spiritual level? Well, what they found in the research is kids that are home educated are much, high, much more highly uh, understanding and adopting and accepting their parents' worldview, what they're being taught. They're much more civically engaged, much more religiously engaged. And so kind of all that Barna research that we saw in Raising the Remnant is also coming true here as well. Here's a, here's a quick disclaimer. What we call the modern homeschool movement, um, a lot of people think it's just the, the negation of school and so they can be at home and do whatever they want. Like I know somebody who says she's homeschooling her kid and she just plays video games all day. Okay? That's probably not any better right, than being in a, in a school where they're at least learning something. right? So um, you might say at this point also, okay, I'm not homeschooling. Why does this issue matter to me? Well, is this talk about home education relevant for Seventh-day Adventists? Because after all, we have schools. Well, think about this. First and foremost, as a parent, when you, when you, when you put your child in a Seventh-day Adventist school, you, what you are doing is you are hiring somebody. You are still ultimately the one responsible for their complete raising, training, educating, everything. Okay, That's on your plate. You can share that burden. That's what we've been given the privilege to do. 1872, we were given that, that vision and told, start schools because the parents need some help. Okay, So there's no shame in, well, I, I've heard from this that homeschooling is kind of better and maybe I shouldn't. No, no, these are both the options. God has given to us, but never view it as I'm completely outsourcing this thing because you're home educating your kid uh, in the afternoon and on the weekends and on the vacations, as I mentioned earlier. And it says the only schoolroom for children until age eight or 10 years of age should be in the open air amid the opening flowers and nature's beautiful scenery. So really, we shouldn't be following the Prussian model and saying, age five, outsourcing the parenting from here. We'll let the community experts take it from here. No, we say until age eight or ten, these are the early years of the formation of character. And so we're going to have the children in their home school until then, all of us. Parents should be the only teachers of their children until they have reached eight or ten years of age. Mothers, let the little ones play in the open air. Let them listen to the songs of the birds and learn the love of God as expressed in his beautiful works. Teach them simple lessons from the book of nature and the things about them. And as their minds expand, lessons from books may be added and firmly fixed in the memory. So there comes a point where the mind is ready. The educational professionals talk about the readiness concept. They talk about it more than sometimes we apply it because we continue to push things earlier and earlier and earlier now, and it's not bearing good fruits. When, when folks like the, the Finns in Finland, they don't start uh, kids in school till age seven, and they're not even doing very serious academics till more like age eight or nine. And even at that point, they have long recesses, short days, lots of physical activity, and they're not like nose to the grindstone from age five, learning reading. Most kindergarten teachers are saying, we're, learn we're teaching reading in kindergarten now, which used to be a, a silly thing. We don't, oh, no, we don't wait till first grade for that, which is even early. But the Finns are number one in the world in educational uh, success in terms of their academic acumen. And it, it works is what, is what we're seeing in that research there. Now, another thing that works is Seventh-day Adventist schools. So all of this about home education, it's awesome, it's the best, and God has this plan B, though. And you might say, but our schools aren't all following the blueprint, and they don't get this home-like schooling concept. And even then, 
Our schools are a little smaller. They get some of the blueprint, right? I mean, they're not perfect, and there's nobody's perfect out there. Uh, but even with all their flaws, and, and can we just say that frankly and bluntly? We all have flaws. I've been in the system, and I'm not trying to bash anybody. But with all of the flaws of, of a school that's trying to move toward that reform, trying to move, move toward that blueprint, we're still knocking it out of the park academically. Take a look at this. This is achievement and ability rising over time. The more years that you're in Seventh-day Adventist schools versus public schools, you are gaining more academically. So we can give a little bit of a thumbs up there. we got a long ways to go. I don't want to whitewash the situation because we do have some serious, serious problems and as it relates to some of, of our schools that we need to really take have, have some in-house discussions about and say how, how closely are we moving toward that blueprint. But we'll get to that more in just a second. So here's the message for parents, okay? This whole narrative, this whole story, this whole history is all about confronting us with this choice. Parents, make every effort in your power to place your children in the most favorable situation for forming the character that God wants them to form. The most favorable situation that's unique to each family. I don't come in and say, this is where you should do, this is what you should do, and we should all do this. No, we we do have the two options. We've got home education, and we've got schools of the prophets. And you make the choice as the Lord leads you for the most favorable situation for forming the character that God wants them to form. Now, there has been an effort to mold our school after other colleges. This is what I'm talking about. This was already back 100 years ago. When this is done, we can give no encouragement to parents to send their children to Battle Creek College. Our Savior did not encourage any to attend the rabbinical schools of his day. So I I don't have a burden just because something is called Christian or it's called Seventh-day Adventist to say we all have to participate in it because it might have that name but be nothing of the sort, right? In the case of Battle Creek College, she's like, whoa, we're seeing some stuff come in here and I can't recommend parents go have their kids go there. Jesus, the same thing. So I'm not going to make any statements about any particular schools, of course. Wouldn't be the right thing in my place to do. But as you think through all the schools out there and you go, what's the most favorable situation? Uh, view this as an option to say, if the school, if schools aren't, aren't home-like schools, blueprinting schools, schools of the prophet style schools, then I don't have two options. I have one, right? Or, or find the other. Find a good school of the prophets, right? There's a wonderful school out in Red Bluff, California that I became acquainted with, and I, I love them as an example because when I bring this up, a lot of school people and parents and homeschool people, and it starts to fight, right? And, and I don't like to fight, right? Because we've got a blueprint. We've got one model, and we're one people. And there doesn't need to be any con- competition, controversy, conflict over this at all. What they've got is half the parents homeschool their kids, half the parents send them to the Adventist school. And I find that to be so beautiful because they all get along. Like when I first heard that, I'm going, oh no, this is going to erupt in some big controversy after I present on parenting and true education here and share these quotations and all of this. And they're like, oh no, you don't get it, Scott. The, 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 the principal is all about the blueprint and she's doing canvassing and she's trying to get labor going and try to do more of this home-like schooling. And she was listening to the seminar. She's like, ooh, we got to do that. So the homeschool parents who are all about the original plan, they're like, yeah, we like her. So they're supporting the school financially without putting their kids in the school to the tune of tuition dollars. So they're not, you know, you know, uh, angry, you know, curmudgeons over here going ah, Babylon and fallen institutions, you know, like people get, right? And we're just critical and you're just deconstructing and there's nothing constructive there at all, right? It's just, it's ridiculousness. It's not helping anybody. These parents are like, let's support a good school. Let's help it reform. And the school parents are like, yes, we want to do things different. We're going to be here. And they're attracting students from the community because it's something different. Isn't that amazing? You might say, well, well nobody's going to like it if we're doing all these 
radically different things. We have to keep up with what the world is doing. Not so. They're having success doing God's plan, which I find to be so beautiful. So those who are not directly connected with a school can help to make it a blessing by giving it their hearty support. Homeschool families, don't become isolated over here and not helping with the broader community because those kids, they might not be coming from homes where the, where the homeschooling can happen. They might be coming from unbelieving homes. You, their souls matter, right? And so we want to really work with our schools, not against them. As long as time shall last, we shall have need of schools. Isn't that an important one? Because these are the training institutions. Our schools are the Lord's special instrumentality to fit up the children and youth for missionary work. The homes and the home-like schools will help finish the work because they're training and raising up the remnant, the kids and youth of the last days. I want to close with a series of quotations that will really bring this home. This is awesome. In the training of his disciples... The Savior followed the system of education established at the beginning. The twelve first chosen formed the, take a guess what's in there. Yeah, the family of Jesus. They were with him in the house, at the table, in the closet, in the field. They accompanied him on his journeys, shared his trials and hardships, and as much as in them was, entered into his work. Sometimes he taught them as they sat together on the mountain side, sometimes by the sea or from the fisherman's boat, sometimes as they walked by the way. Jesus did a home-like school, didn't he? That was awesome. He was with those guys all the time. And then it worked. To every nation under heaven was the gospel carried in a single generation. That's powerful. These were unschooled fishermen. They weren't schooled in the rabbinical schools. They, they were known as these, these illiterate, illiterate working class guys, but they went to the school of Jesus and they learned from him and their education bore fruit. They spread the gospel to the whole world in one generation. Then it says this, the presence of that same guide, Jesus, in educational work today, doing it the way he did it, if we do the same thing, we will produce the same results as of old. This is the end to which true education tends. This is the work that God designs it to accomplish. Are you getting this? If we do home education and home-like schools the way God designed, we will finish the work. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org